crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Noctegal. Thank you very much for listening in today. We're going to be talking about biblical archaeology today and the right approach to whether a discovery supports the Bible or not. How do you get to that point? A lot of the time on this program, we do talk about different discoveries that have come to light of late and in the past because of their attachment to Scripture, because of their attachment to the Bible. They either um, prove the biblical biblical narrative as being accurate, they uh, elucidate or highlight a certain period in the Bible and show the daily life being uh, daily life from back then being brought to life. If they highlight the narratives, they add color to the to the flesh of the biblical story. And today we're going to talk about specifically how we determine whether or not something confirms Scripture or doesn't. The process which we have to go through in order to determine that. And this is critical. This is critical. These points are critical. If you are able to, de- to help you determine yourself with your own brain, with your own mind, whether a, 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 an artifact or a discovery is biblically significant or if it isn't. Because there, we often talk about how academics today go to great lengths to prove something does not uh, testify to the accuracy of Scripture. They will go to great lengths to show that it doesn't. But there is also, on the other side of the spectrum, those that believe everything they find is biblically significant when it is not the case. And so we're going to go through the process to determine whether a discovery supports the Bible or not. First of all, the thing that you I'm going to go through the first, the points that you have to cover to determine this. First of all, you have to understand what the Bible actually says. That means going to the text, reading through the different uh, uh, parallel accounts of the text, and it's really important to take the text at face value. To look at the Bible itself, of course, if you're reading an English version, you have to do more than that. You have to go understand as best you can the Hebrew uh, that, that, or the Aramaic, whatever the scripture was written in, and understand what those words meant in the larger context of how it was written. But at the same time, I don't want to get hung up on this determination of when the books were written, in that Chronicles was written after the book of Kings, and so Kings is therefore more accurate than Chronicles. No, really, they do go together in a perfectly uh, in dovetail in giving a full picture, the Kings and the Chronicles account. There's a lot of biblical scholars today that will read the later books, uh, those that were written after, and say, therefore, because they are written so far after the fact, they are less accurate than the book of than the earlier books of the Bible that were written earlier. When that just isn't the case, sure, it is best to have an eyewitness writing about the events, and if you don't have that, a historian that's closer to the account. But at the same time, we have to understand that later writers might actually have had, unless they're an eyewitness, they might have had more information at their disposal to give a true, a truer, a more true picture of the of the account or the event in Scripture. And so it's really important just to take the Bible at face value and, and determine what it actually says, but, ra- but to think less about or worry less about when you think these books were written. 
because there's lots of different varying debates out there. And so, but the main point from this is to determine what the Bible actually says. And don't think that you know what it says uh, without going back and reading it, given a a certain period or, or how you think the conquest happened or something like that. It's important to go back and read what the Bible actually says. I think this is one of the, the points at which most biblical archaeologists actually fall short. False interpretation of what the Bible says is where most of them fall short. It's definitely where most reporting on these discoveries falls short. It, they will start off, you think David was like this, that, and this. Well, you're wrong. Well, instead of just saying you think that what David was like, go to the Scripture, elucidate, or bring out what the Scripture says about King David. And show me what show me how the artifacts match up with that. Because I think the, the big thing that really gets me in this one is when they're trying to prove David or Solomon or discount a discovery from David's time, they say, oh, we don't find many structures from David's time built throughout Israel. And so that disproves David as being a big king. Well, go back and read what the Bible says. It says that Solomon was a builder and David wasn't. So don't expect to find massive structures all over the place from David's time. You will find a few but it's not going to be the huge construction uh, that you would get from later periods. That's just one example. So the first step to determining whether something supports the Bible or not is going to the Bible and discovering what the Bible actually says. That's the starting point. That's the starting point. That's the basic premise of understanding true biblical archaeology. Go to the text, see what it says. The second thing you have to do after you've figured out that are these as a trifecta of categories that the discovery needs to fulfill. Basically, checkbox for each of these things before you can determine whether you have a match between the text and the discovery. The first of those is to determine whether you have the right place. Whether you have the right place. A place that you have discovered that matches where this event took place in the Bible. Does the place in which it was found match the biblical description. Is there a match between right place? The second is right time. The dating of the structure of the structure that you're talking about or the discovery or the location, the dating of it is important. I'm going to go through and show you how these apply to numerous discoveries here in a second, but I just wanted to give you these three points first, the right place, the right time, and then you need to make sure you have the right stuff. Is it the right culture that should that matches up with the scripture? If it's talking about, if the scripture is talking about Philistine culture there in this town or whatever, do you have Philistine culture? Or is it Judean culture? Or is it Canaanite culture? Or not just that with the culture, is the right stuff, meaning if you're looking for a certain building, does the discovery of this building or the let's say the, the size of this building match the, the, the biblical description of how this building should be built and so on? And so I'm going to go through all of these, the right place, the right time, the right stuff, with the discovery of King David's palace, with the recent discovery of uh, biblical Ziklag, or potentially biblical Ziklag. We're also going to go through it with the the process through through the discovery of Herbert Kayafa as well. And then we're also going to talk about, uh, if we have time, the nature of the conquest during Joshua's time. So the first one of these, let's talk about King David's palace. Again, the right approach is to, is to go to the Bible and see what it actually says. And if we're talking about the, the palace of David, we're talking about Dr. Elot Mazar and her discovery of it based on Scripture. 
She went to the Bible first. She obviously understood the uh, the archaeology. She understood the discoveries that had been made in the city of David and the Ophel also with her with her grandfather and with Yigal Shalom. Here's a lady that even before she started excavating in David's palace was well familiar with the archaeology of the region. Uh, she had had her hands in the dirt there for decades already before she started to or before she claimed that she knew where it should be located based on the biblical text. So if we're doing that, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5 is, is a great chapter. It puts in context and, and in chronological order uh, when the palace of David was built, where it should be built as well. And so this is her interpretation. I'm going to read through a few verses here to show you where the palace should be built according to her. She made this uh, deduction based on scripture and also the knowledge of the geography of Jerusalem of the time. It says this in verse 7 of Second Samuel chapter 5. This is just after David is made king over Israel and Judah and comes to Jerusalem. They take Jerusalem, which was uh, the Jebus or the, the Jebusites, uh, live there. Uh, verse 7 says this, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. So we have the name being changed here to the city of David, and he's taking this city of Jebus, which was also on the northern part of it, it is determined, well, it would be, is the fortress of Zion. If you look at the geography of Jerusalem at this time, the eastern part of it, there's a huge valley, the Kidron Valley. The western part of it, there's a huge valley, the, the Cheesemakers Valley, the Tyropian Valley. On the southern part as well, <clears throat> you have the Hinnom Valley there. Um, so you, you've got basically three sides of this, uh, of this uh, ridge, uh, covered in, well, being massive valleys. And so the only place that, well, the most likely place that you would be attacked is from the north because the city kept on rising uh, towards the north along this ridge. And so that's where your main city wall would have been. It's also where you would have put the fortress. And so we have David taking this Jebusite city, taking the fortress of Zion, which would have been on the northern part of the city, and relabeling it the city of David. Let's read verse 9 now. So David dwelt in the fort. So this is where he dwelt inside the old city, the city of the city of David or the Jebusite city, and called it the city of David. And David built round about him from below inward. And David went on and grew great, and the eternal God of hosts was with him. Verse 11, And Hiram king of Tyre sent messages to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. They built David a house. So this is his palace. This is his house, his palace, being constructed with the aid of the Phoenician king, Hiram. Now, you can go and try and find out when exactly Hiram ruled. Um, there, is, there is disagreement as to when exactly Hiram ruled. We only have this really vague account from Josephus, who lived about a thousand years after this time, that tries to put a king's list together for Hiram. And so while Hiram is put uh, towards the really latter part of David's reign, Potentially, the the fifth last year of David's reign is when he came to, uh, according to Josephus, and according to people's understanding of Josephus, he came in to reign at the last five years of David's reign. But there's obviously some, dis there would be a point of, of argument there that there was either another Haram or was Haram from a different city, not the city of, um, of uh, or not Tyre, different, a different Phoenician city uh, at this point. And so there is debate over that. Nevertheless, we have here... Um, David's palace being built at a certain time around David's life, and this is being built somewhere in Jerusalem. But where? Where? Is it built inside the city or not? 
Well, if you continue with the context here, there's a couple of verses uh, which are out of chronological order. They don't necessarily impact the storyline at all. But verse 17 says this, But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it and went down to the hold. He went down to the fortress from a certain location. So this is the key scripture at determining where the palace was built. Dr. Mazar asked, He came down from where? Down from where? He went down to the fortress, and we heard about him in the verse previous, a couple of verses previous, that there was a palace that was built for him. And so it indicates that he came down from this newly built palace just outside the city, further southward. So that's what the Bible says, down the hill, down the ridge to the fortress. So if you're going to look for the palace, it should be somewhere just north of the old Jebusite city, just north of where the fortress of Zion should, should be. That's where the palace should be. So that's what the Bible says about it. The biblical dating for this period is about 1000 BC. There is a little bit of disagreement over that. Um, but around that time is when David became king over both Israel and Judah and set out to take Jerusalem. So we'll give it that date, 1000 BC. So if we're talking about the right time, right place, right stuff in this, we've got the geography and we've got the time that the Bible puts it there. And so it should be a, a building that was constructed during this period. So what about the, let's go through this. Dr. Mazar starts excavating here in 2005 in a location just north of where the ancient Jebusite city should have existed, the very northern part of it. And she starts to find a massive building. She finds a massive building. She then goes about dating that structure and she dates it to around the time of King David, as we'll get to. And inside that building, she's got, this is Jerusalem, she's got Judean weird pottery and stuff uh, from, from that period as well. So really she has a match according to her. She's got the right location just north based on the biblical text of where the, the city wall should have been where David came from to go down to the fortress. So she has the right place. She has the right stuff as well. It is a large building. Initially, there were plenty of people that came out in 2005 and discussed of why she was wrong. And they based it off a couple of things. They said at first, she doesn't have one building. It's multiple buildings. And it's probably a building from the Hellenistic period. It's not the right time either. But as, as the extra seasons go on, 2006, 2007, more evidence surfaces. This structure gets another couple of huge walls that show that this is one large building. Now the question comes to, is it the right time? Was this building constructed during the time of King David? We have the right place. We have the right stuff. It is a large building and also the right culture. But when, what's the dating of the structure? And this is really where an archaeologist's job lies, giving an accurate date to the buildings as much as possible. And Dr. Mazar, after excavating this, she notes that this building is built on fresh dirt. There wasn't a structure there before. If there was, it was removed. And the latest material comes from underneath this structure, this new building, which she calls David's Palace, was from around 1100, bit thereafter, 1050 BCE. So about 50 years before David is when the latest possible material is found there. Then she excavates inside and attached to the building itself. And she gets around 980, something like that. And so she's got this window of time now where King David's rule over Jerusalem fits squarely in that. 
But there's also there's also other um, potential dates for this structure. It could have been a little bit before David. And really in archaeology, you do always provide a window, a window of time in which that structure was built. It's best to make that window as short as possible, and you can do that from carbon samples, from, potter, from pottery analysis and such, to try and determine what the construction window is for the building. For this building, which Dr. Mazar calls King David's Palace, the construction window is probably something around 70 years, 60 years. Nestled right in the middle of that time is the reign of King David. And so King David fits perfectly as the constructor of this building. It matches the biblical account. You have the right stuff. You have the right place. And you have the right time. And so nowadays, the argument about King David's palace is not whether it was a huge building, is not whether uh, it's, it's located in the right spot to match the biblical description. It's whether it was built by David or possibly the Jebusites 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, David conquered Jerusalem. And so Dr. Mazar acknowledges this fact in her book, books about it. She talks about the fact that there is a larger window, but then she discusses what's the most logical choice for designating this structure as, as being King David's palace. We're saying that King David's palace is the best. One, you have a historical reference of a building being built in this location during the reign of King David. So she will treat the biblical text as being accurate at this point. She's got no reason to dispute it. It's the best and only text to describe Jerusalem from this time. And so since she has a match with the historical source, it's, it seems good to go along with that historical source. Others would come along and say, well, we have to ditch the Bible on this point and not really talk about that. Let's talk about whether it could be Jebusite. And Dr. Mazar again does concede that, sure, it could have been built a little bit earlier. But we also know that the Israelites were crawling around this territory at the time, and they wanted Jerusalem or Jebus. They'd always wanted it. And are the Jebusites going to build, right, as Israelites are crawling over this territory, are they going to build a massive structure outside their city wall? Again, it was so far outside the city wall that David, or at least if you believe the biblical text, David had to withdraw to the defense of the city wall further towards the south. And so Dr. Mazars came along and said, it just doesn't make sense that right as the Israelites are crawling around this territory, right as King Saul and then King David is about to take off, become king, that the Jebusites are going to have this new expanded city towards the north without a city wall to protect this new beautiful structure that's going to be built there. She says, what's more logical is it's King David's palace. So to this day, Dr. Mazar won't come out and say it's 100% King David's palace. She will say it's most likely it's 99% King David's palace, a massive structure built by David's time, or built during David's time, and it matches the biblical description. So why not say it is? And if you have a better, a better, uh, better designation of it, then let's argue that point. So you have a match here, or as close as you're going to get, between the Bible, between archaeology, between right place, right time, right stuff. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will look at another one of these discoveries, Biblical Ziklag. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. We're talking about the appropriate approach to whether a discovery supports the Bible narrative or not. We went through these points, determining what the Bible actually says, then figuring out whether you have the right place, right time, and right stuff of that discovery to match what the biblical description says. Next, I want to talk about biblical ziklag. This made uh, headlines back on uh, July. July 8th is when the press release was uh, um, given out from an excavation taking place at Kerbet Arai. This is a place that is in the territory between where the ancient Philistines were and where the ancient Israelites were, right in the Shefela there. And um, archaeologist Yossi Garfinkel and Sarganor said that they had discovered Ziklag, or at least that's what they released. So we're going to go through this discovery and determine how it checks out. Does it support this? Is this biblical Ziklag? Does it match the biblical text? And have they found the right evidence to match the Bible as well, what the Bible says? Again, the first place you have to look at this is what does the Bible say about Ziklag? I'm going to quote from Christopher Eames's article, King David, More Evidence Unearthed, published August 8th at Watch Jerusalem. He's going to go through this process that we've been, been discussing. He's not going to talk about it in exactly, the right, in exactly the same manner that I'm discussing it, but this is what he does. He talks about what the Bible says, and then he's going to see if they have a match. Right place, right time, right stuff. He writes this, Anciently, during the, uh, during the reign of a violent and unstable King Saul, David and 600 other men were on the run. Wary of being constantly on the move within the land of Israel, David took his men to the Philistine city of Gath and sought refuge with King Achish. As the account in 1 Samuel 27-29 describes, the Philistine king befriended David, seeing in him a fellow enemy of Israel, or at least an enemy of Saul. And he gave him a remarkable gift. And so now he's going to quote 1 Samuel 27, verse 5 and 6. It says this, And David said unto Achish, If I have now found grace in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Then Achish gave him Ziklag to that day, uh, that day wherefore Ziklag pertains unto the kings of Judah unto this day. And so, as Chris writes, Ziklag become a sort of the first city for David. He had already been chosen, anointed as king, but he was not yet publicly recognized as such until after King's, uh, King Saul's death. And so he lived there. Ziklag lived, um, uh, David lived, sorry, at Ziklag for about a year and four months. So we have the biblical account. We have a city here that was Philistine, that was then uh, Judean or Davidic for a little bit. And the transition between the two. Uh, shouldn't be a fire or a war that before you get to the Judean culture that is, exists there, because it was a gift. So let's look at the finds at Kirbet Arai and see if they match up with the biblical accounts of this story of Ziklag. This is what Chris continues to write. The excavation located in what would have been originally Philistine territory, so we have the right place in terms of at least it's in the area, it's in the vicinity would have been Philistine territory, shows heavy evidence of Philistine settlement from the 12th to 11th centuries BCE, which is the period of pr primary Philistine settlement in the Levant. So, basically, by looking at what's the city that was underneath this Judean city that they're about to find there, they find Philistine remains. So it was Philistine. Kibet Arai was Philistine. 
Then the remains of the Philistine settlement show a transition into rural Judean settlement, dating to around the 10th century, the time of King David. Discoveries belonging to this Judean settlement include nearly 100 complete vessels identical to those of another earlier, earlier Davidic city, Kerbet Kayafa. The similarity of Kibbet Arai and Kibbet Kayafa can be well vouched for as they were both excavated by professors Yossi Garfinkel and Saraganor and carbon dated to this identical period. And so what we have here is we have Philistine and then around 1000 BCE at the right time of King David, you have Judean culture coming in. Then he says this, Evidence shows that this during this period of Judean occupation, Kibbet Arai uh, suffered from an intense fire. It just There was a fire that destroyed the site right after this Judean occupation. This too matches with the biblical account of Ziklag. So he's going back to what the Bible actually says. While David and his men were on the run, were on an expedition, sorry, with Achish, the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. That's what it says in 1 Samuel 30 verse 1 to 2. Evidence of the Amalekites has been elusive to archaeologists. The fire at Kebetari could be evidence of their marauding presence. The excavation team is still waiting on date, dating analysis to show exactly when this fiery destruction occurred, and thus it fits precisely with the Amalekite attack. Okay, so let's unpack that right now. We have the right time period of when Ziklag belonged to David being testified to here at this excavation on this tell, in the borderland between the Philistines uh, and Israel. You have a Philistine settlement underneath, then you have a Judean settlement, and then you have a fire. So do you have the right stuff? Yeah, you do have the right stuff. That's the, probably the greatest help in this, um, potentially making this biblical ziklag, is the fact that you have the right cultures there, and you also have the right timing. Sometime around David, you had a transition of this site, Kibbutz from the Philistines going to the Israelites or going to be Judean, and there was no fire, there was no destruction. This was a gift, or there was a smooth trans, uh, transfer of power of this site. Again, that matches perfectly biblical Ziklag. So you have right time and right stuff. Now let's go on to talk about what happened after the release of this discovery. In reaction to the press release from the site excavators, site excavators and the Israel Antiquity Authority, some debate has stirred among the archaeological community as to whether this is indeed biblical ziklag. And then it says this, The primary debate revolves around whether or not Kibetari fits geographically with the biblical account. Ziklag was primarily assumed to have been located further south, given its original allotment to the tribe of Simeon in Joshua 19 and verse 5. So, this is an important discussion that has to take place, because we're not doing away with the archaeology, and we're up actually upholding what the Bible actually says. We're going to the Bible and looking at this, the geography of where Ziklag should be located, and there are a couple of indicators in Scripture that Ziklag should indeed be further south. One of those is that Ziklag was given to the tribe of, of Simeon, and the tribe of Simeon was given territory within the tribe of Judah, and most of the other cities mentioned in that, in that same passage of Scripture as being given to Simeon are indeed further south. They have been sites that have been located correctly as being further south. And so this is a legitimate point 
of argument. If this is Ziklag, what's it doing so far north? And I'm not going to go into back and forth of, of why that might be the case, of why this still might be Ziklag. But you can see here that this is where the argument lies. It lies on whether they have the right place. Now, as we go on to write about, or Chris does in this article, whether or not it's a biblical ziklag, it, I, I just so wish that they didn't um, go in so strong that this was definitely biblical ziklag, in at least the press report. Acknowledge the fact, more so, that this is further north than we originally, in, originally thought based on the scripture. And then discuss the fact that you have a Judean settlement with lots of stuff taking over from the Philistines during the time of King David. This is big. That, this, the, this, the broader narrative of the Bible is being proven here. Whether or not it's biblical ziklag, it's being shown that King David, or whoever was a monarch, and the Bible says it was David, at this time took over a Philistine city on the borderland between Judah uh, or Judah and where the Philistines were located. So there's an argument over right place. Now I want to talk about Kirbet Kayafa. This is probably uh, one of the most heated uh, or the most heated debate in biblical archaeology uh, comes up surrounding this location when really I think that this location uh, pr- is proven probably, or the Bible is is proven or testified to um, by this discovery of this town <clears throat> or this fortress, really, on the edge of Judean settlement, right between the Philistines and the where the Israelites were as well. I think it's proven so well. But what we'll see is archaeologists trying to pick apart right place, right time, right stuff to undermine the support of this location is matching with the biblical text. So let's talk about Kirbet Kayafa. This is a fortress town that was located back in 2006 for the first excavation season, uh, overlooking the Valley of Elah, where, where uh, David and Goliath fought. And you had excavators there digging there. And what they found was a fortress city with one coherent architectural plan and they dated it based on the pottery and based on the uh, carbon samples found within the layers that contain that pottery to around the time of King David as well. And so what they said by finding this fortress is that we have a fortress on the frontier of Israelite and Philistine territory. And when I say Israelite, I'm, I'm talking about the broader sense of Israelite, not the northern kingdom. I'm talking about the united monarchy of Judah and Israel, that's what the Bible talks about. And so you have right on this borderland between the Philistines and the Israelites a fortress, a fortress that dates nicely to King David's time. It also matches in terms of the the broader policy of David uh, to have a fortress at this point there in that location, given that uh, they were a nemesis, the Philistines, around this time. You wanted to, to protect the edges of your edges of your kingdom, just as you would in the game of risk. You're putting all your troops on the border of your territory and you're leaving small garrisons on the interior because people have to get through that exterior line of defense to get to the main populated centers. And so as they were excavating through here, they made the determine, to determination that this was Judean and not just Judean or, or Israelite in the sense of uh, Judah being a part of Israel uh, proper. We have a material culture 
the right stuff there as well that isn't Philistine or anything else. It is Judean. So what did the naysayers come out and talk about? In terms of right place, they couldn't really discuss anything against what the biblical account says. Because the Bible, it's very obvious that the Philistines and the, and the, and the Israelites were enemies for a time and uh, during King David's time. So the next thing that they wanted to do was they attacked the right time. They said that, yes, you're in the right place for this, but you don't have the right time period. And they discredited some of the, they talked about the pottery for one, but when you found all the carbon samples that matched up with the pottery, the time was out the window in the sense that the time matched time of King David. And so everyone agrees now that you have the right place for this to match the Bible. You have the right time of this fortress to match the Bible. But do you have the right stuff? Who lived there? Again, it's right on the border between the Philistines and the Judeans. Is this a Philistine site? Is it a Philistine site? Or is it something else? And this is where um, big arguments have taken place, let's say, over the past six or seven years. As to what is the cultural makeup of this location. This is the last point that has that can be argued. If you're going to argue against a Davidic-led uh, monarchy being a powerful force that could project its power to the edge of the kingdom, as the Bible says, and build a fortress there, you have to come up with an argument against right place, right time, right stuff. And they can't argue with the right place or right time, and so now they have to argue with right stuff. Unable to refute the dating of this fortress, many archaeologists attempted to change the ethnic identity of the site. One claimed it was a Philistine site. Another said it was a Canaanite site. One uh, suggested it belonged to King Saul, not King David. Another archaeologist concluded that it must belong to another people, a people that we've never even discovered yet in the land. Philistine, Canaanite, Saul, or an unknown people, they considered anything. It must be anything else but what, King, what the Bible would say, that it was from King David's time. This is what Garfinkel wrote, the excavator there, in a paper a couple of years ago. He says this, quote, there are, four, there are major points in common to these four suggestions. These are the points in common. They, are major, well, they try to impose an ethnic group that is not Judean or Davidic. Basically, that's point number one. They need to come up with another people, another culture that existed here because they can't disagree with the dating of it. He says that's one point in common they have. The second thing that they have is no systematic analysis of the various material culture aspects is presented. So they don't actually go through the stuff that was found there that proves that it's Judean. And it's like a it's beautiful the way that it is proven that it's Judean. And, and, and uh, Garfinkel goes to great lengths to show that it's Judean by the lack of pig bones, by the types of pottery, by the lack of idols, like pillared figure, uh, not pillared figurines, other figurines, that all these other cultures were notorious for. And then he writes this. The other thing that they had all in common with making up these other ethnic identities for this site he says this, quote, These scholars have already held for 10 or 20 years the position that the kingdom of Judah was established only in the late 9th or 8th centuries BCE. In other words, Quebec Caiaphas' new data challenged their earlier conclusions. And is in this case, they have two options in front of them, either to alter their older approaches, 
basically say that they were wrong, or to hold on to them and suggest a new interpretation for the ethnic identification of Kibbutz Kayafa's population. So basically he says, these people have argued for years that David didn't exist as the Bible says. And so if they're going to claim that Kibbutz Kayafa wasn't David, they have to come up with a different ethnic identity for the people for Kibbutz Kayafa, for the constructors and the inhabitants of Kibbutz Kayafa. And so they go to great lengths to try and show that it could have been somebody else without really dealing with the evidence. Even to the point of creating an unknown uh, peoples in the land. At this time, the Bible talks about the Canaanites, Amalekites, you know, Philistines, Israelites, Judeans. It can't be one of those. It is maybe somebody else that we haven't actually been haven't discovered before. Right in the middle when you have a plethora already of peoples living in this area. Like some people came in and took this, built this one city and then departed the next year out of the, out of the location. Crazy ideas. All because they had a prior belief that David wasn't as such. And so they're trying to change or at least apply a different ethnic group to uh, this location. Science is supposed to be the study of objective fact. But this is not science anymore. When people make it so personal, when they cling to their prior ideas, they create, fabricate, Ethnic uh, peoples that we've never existed and historical documents don't talk about living in this exact area. This is what how Garfinkel finishes. He says, placing this current debate in its accurate place within the history of research clearly indicates that this subject was dealt with in a polemical way rather than using balanced scientific rather than using a balanced scientific view. The debate over the ethnicity is shouldn't be a debate. It's pretty obvious. In fact, you probably couldn't get a more obvious um, ethnic markers than those that exist at Kibbutz Kayafa that it is a Judean site. This is just an indication of showing how the arguments go in determining whether something is biblically significant or not. What you have to do is look to the Bible and see what it actually says, not your interpretation of the Bible. And then you have to determine whether you have the right place, the right time, and the right stuff. And that's where all the archaeological arguments lie. That's where all the scientific community is arguing whether or not something proves the Bible or not. They're arguing on these three points, and they're all valid. You need to prove these three points. That the, you're, the place that you're excavating or the thing that you're excavating is right where the Bible says it should be. That the dating of the structure or the town or the fortress that you were talking about matches the biblical dating that is given in the, in the pages of the Bible. And then you also need to show that you have the right stuff, the right culture, the right ethnic makeup, or if it is a building, the right size of the building. It is what the Bible says or it isn't. Is that what you've found or you're interpreting the wrong thing? Now, you can be armed with these, these points to help you determine accurately whether a discovery proves the Bible or not, proves that specific account or not. And that's important as we weather this storm of mostly anti-Bible scholars that are trying to do away with the discoveries by picking at one of these points, as we see here with Kibat Kayafa, 
or whether we uh, look to um, at the other side of the spectrum, where some people are claiming that everything is biblically significant to some to some degree to try and get fame or whatever on the other side. There is an honest scientific debate that is allowed to take place to determine whether something proves the veracity of Scripture or not. The right approach takes into account what the Bible says first and foremost. And then you can look at and argue right place, right time, and right stuff. That's all we have for today's program. Thank you very much for listening in. Sorry it was a little bit quicker pace through there, uh, but I hope that you gained some valuable insights through it and helping you to be able to determine and uh, whether something is biblically significant or not. If you'd like to send some feedback on this program or others, please do write your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Next week, I don't know if it'll be me on the program. If not, it'll probably be Christopher Eames, and I'm sure he'll be cooking up a good one for you. Thanks again for listening, and have a good week.